summer series. Uh, in, it's called Finding Jesus in the Book of Judges. And so we're probably about in our fifth one, talking about our fifth judge this morning. And, um, you know, as we're going through, we're looking at Gideon. And Gideon is probably one of the more famous of the judges that has uh, been brought to our attention. And a lot of us probably know some of the crazy, amazing things that happened uh, through Gideon as God worked in and through him. And so we see the mighty works and the mighty acts that Gideon was able to perform as he uh, gave himself and made himself available to God. But what we probably don't know is some of the ways that he went south. When things went bad, they went really bad for him. And it kind of is a testament to life or a, a way that we process through life. And it's to finish well. Gideon did not finish well. And, and really, that's kind of one of those things that as we follow Christ, that Jesus really wants us to do in our life. He wants us to finish well. And so if you're moving from one job to the next job, as you're leaving one job, you need to finish well before you start the next one. If you're working on a long project, don't get bored three quarters of the way through and give up on it. Finish well. If you're, you know, for kids that are going through school, coming to the end of the school year, or teachers, finish well. It's one of those things that we need to incorporate into our lives that we are going to make a covenant with ourselves and with God to finish well. And that includes the way we live our life. So as we come to the end of our life, we're finishing well. That's really what God wants us to do. And, and that's, that's one of the problems that I would say was a failure of Gideon. He started his adult life in obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. He was a nobody. He was kind of a, a bit of a coward too. And, and then as God called him to do something, he stepped into leadership and he did well. He was faithful in leadership. But after his leadership part was over, he went into this downward spiral uh, in his life and kind of crashed at the bottom of it. But we don't hear too much about that aspect. We only hear the good part about his life. And so what we've got is we've got this judge that God's calling into service. But why does God have to call Gideon to do something for him? So uh, let's look at how we got to the place where Gideon is going to be the judge over Israel. And it's chapter 6, verse 1 of Judges, and it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. All right. So every time that a judge is stepping up to do something for God, God's calling them to do something, it's because of those first few words right there, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you could put in there again. Because that was the pattern of their life. They would, they would walk away from God. They would enter into idolatry and worship of idols. And that was the one thing that probably irritated and, and uh, brought God's anger and wrath against them more than anything else is that they would worship other gods. And here they do it again. They had 40 years of, of spiritual and physical rest from oppression under the leadership of the, the judge uh, of 
Judge Deborah, the only woman judge, and she brought 40 years of God's rest to the nation. But as soon as she dies, I mean, it was like they, she got sick, they buried her in the grave, and the next week after that, they started worshiping idols again. And God's going like, are you kidding me? But it is true what happens when we lack spiritual leadership. This is true around the world and with countries. When we lack spiritual, godly leadership, our countries, our nations will slip down the slippery slope into sinful behavior. It's a pattern that you can see throughout the history of the world. And so we've got this thing going on. And and here's the interesting thing is, is that when God gives Israel over to Midian to rule them, it's for seven years. And if you take a look at, at some of the other places where Israel was oppressed, it was for a much longer time than seven years. But this seven years of oppression and subject, subjugation of Israel under Midian was, was one that was quite overwhelming. It, there was an intensity to it that they hadn't experienced. And so now we're going to take a look at that. And so verses 2 through 6 says this, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains, and caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in, the land, in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Before, uh, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now the Amalekites the Midianites and the people of the east were so numerous that you couldn't count them. I mean, they just kind of came in like a swarm. It's kind of like having a rock concert that goes south. All of a sudden, the people at the rock concert are going, throwing all inhibitions away. They're going like, let's just go into town and loot and pillage and plunder, and let's just take whatever we want because there's not a law enforcement. There aren't any, and at this time, they're going like, we don't have any rules. We don't have any laws to obey because we're in Israel. We can do whatever we want. We'll take what we want, leave what we don't want. We'll make a mess of everything. And so they would come in, and they would absolutely destroy everything that was there. They, They left nothing behind except their waste. And it was so wicked and evil that the Israelites go, we've got to find a place to where we can hide out and get away from this, a place where we can protect our families. So they kind of became like hobbits, and they built houses or homes into the sides of the mountains. They would find caves that they could hide in. They would make a stronghold, and I don't know what the stronghold would look like, but each of these places is a place where they're going like, we need to get away from the people who are invading our country and making us miserable because they're going to do something to us that we don't want to have happen. And so they would, they would evacuate the area. They would leave the towns and the villages and they would go by themselves and they would hide out and they would get away from all that was going on and bringing on them. They came 
And the, the problem is, is that when they, these people would come in, they came in such a swarm that it was kind of like they would rape the land, if I can use that terminology, because that's, I want you to get the picture of how bad this really was, because they didn't just come in and just hang out. They came in at harvest time, and then they would steal the harvest from the Israelites. Then they would steal their sheep and their ox and their donkeys. They would take absolutely everything. They would bring their livestock in to the country, and the livestock would eat everything down to nothing. And so Israel had nothing. There was nothing left for them. And so now they're hiding out because they're under the oppression of these people that are coming in. And so as a nation, what they do is they cry out to God. They're, they, they're starting to all of a sudden, they're going like, this is so bad, we need to remember who God is. And this is kind of the, the, the cyclical thing that happens. They sin against God, they fall under the oppression of somebody else, and then all of a sudden the oppression gets so bad that they cry out to God, God sends a deliverer or a savior and and brings back his holiness and righteousness to the country. That seems to be the pattern. But now they cry out to God, and God says, I'm doing something a little bit different this time. Instead of me coming and bringing a deliverer right away, I'm going to send a prophet It doesn't tell us who the prophet is, but the Bible tells us in Judges, it tells us that God sent a prophet, and the prophet came to Israel and said, thus says the Lord. And when you hear a prophet say that, you pick up your ears and you go, okay, something really important is going to be said here. And so then the prophet took them and gave them a reminder, a history lesson. And he said, the Lord God Almighty brought you up out of Egypt. He brought you out of the bondage of the Egyptians. He did it through a series of miracles of of the the ten plagues. He brought you across the Red Sea. There were people who were trying to kill you. God rescued you, you from them. And he brought you through all these different things and brought you into the promised land and laid out the promised land for you and said, here it is, take the promised land, Bring it under control. Drive out the heathens and the people who worship false gods, and I will bless you. But one thing you must do, you must worship me. And, and what happened is, is that the people are going, yeah, okay. And, and so what happens is, is in verse 10, you get to see what God said to Israel. And it says this, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear or worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Israel wonders why they're in the trouble that they're in. Hello? It doesn't take a a rocket scientist or a rocket surgeon. Is that the way that one goes? I heard that one the other day. You know, there's some people with a certain color of hair that's not brown or red or black. And sometimes they get things mixed up and they say, instead of, you know, rocket scientist or brain surgeon. They combine, because you could do both, I guess, be a rocket surgeon. It can happen, I guess. If you disobey God, if you're going to walk in disobedience to the very things that God says, don't do this, and you go, I don't think he really meant it. I think I'm going to do this. There are consequences to your disobedience with God. He doesn't go like, okay, I know I said that, but look, I've only said it once. I'll say it another 40 times. You've seen the parents like that? 
Little Johnny is messing around in the grocery store. He's trying to juggle three jars of pickles or something. And mom says, Johnny, stop it. Johnny, stop it. Johnny, I told you to stop it. Now, Johnny, I'm only going to tell you one more time. Stop it, Johnny. Johnny, I said stop it. I meant it. Stop it. You see, that's kind of the picture we think of God. We think God's like a permissive parent who's going to say a whole bunch of stuff but never follow through on it. God's not that way. God says, don't do it. And if we do it, God's going like, I told you not to do that. Now here's what's going to happen. Now it doesn't mean he doesn't love you because in Hebrews it tells us that if, if we are part of God's family, we're his children, he disciplines the ones he loves. That's what he tells us. And he loves Israel. So he brings discipline through these these um, bad, evil, wicked kings to get their attention to bring them back from worshiping other gods. And so the great thing about God is he's not the kind of guy that goes, okay, I told you so. I'm, I'm going to rub it in your face a little bit. I told you not to do that. You did it. So guess what? So sad, too bad. You've made your bed. Now you sleep in it for a while, mister. That's not the way God responds. When people cry out to God, when there's a cry, a a compassionate plea for help, and they're crying out to God, God's ear is attentive to the cry for help. And he's a compassionate God. He's a long-suffering God. And so he comes along, and he wants to help them out. And so what he's going to do, he is going to bring them a, a, a deliverer. You could call him a savior, a hero, someone who's going to set them free. But I'm going to tell you this, like we have seen before, you can line up all these different people and you would take a look at them with your physical eye and you'd go like, yeah, I'd pick that guy to deliver us. I'd pick that guy to deliver us. That guy, not so much. And that was the guy, Gideon. He, you know, it's, it says here in Gideon 6, 11 and 12, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, and, which belonged to Joash, the Abzorite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, hiding out in a winepress. You're going like, really? This is the mighty man of valor. He's in a wine press beating the wheat. It's it's a harvest. It's the wheat harvest festival going on. And the Midianites know about it. So they're going to roll into Jerusalem expecting the harvest to be on, the, the big celebration. And they're going to scoop in and they're going to get drunk and then they're going to take everything for themselves. That's what normally happens. But the Israelites are going like, we'll be a little bit deceptive with them because it's not grape harvest time. We're not going to be making wine, so let's use our wine press and vats to go beat the wheat out because they'll never think of looking in there. They're Midianites. They may be big, powerful, and strong, but they're not that smart. So that's what Gideon was doing. He's hanging out in the wine press because he's a mighty man of valor, beating the wheat, getting his stuff ready for, for use. And... Of all the things that are on Gideon's resume, Mighty Man of Valor is not on there. 
He is not that guy. And so, because he's hiding out and doing all this stuff. And so God calls him to this position. He says, I want you to come and I want you to rescue Israel. Not just rescue, but deliver an entire nation from the oppression of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other folks. And as you know, Gideon went like, I'm glad you recognized all of my talent and my abilities and skills. I'm the guy. I've just been waiting, hiding out in this wine press for you to come and get me. No, that is not what he said. Here's what he said. He said, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest tribe of Manasseh. And not only that, but of all the men in my father's house, I'm the least of them. In other words, here comes all the excuses why he can't do what God's calling him to do. God has already declared to him, you are a mighty man of valor. And now what God wants is for him to step up and move into that position because if God declares something about you, that is the truth about you. Guess what God calls you? Your child. Guess what else God calls you? A saint. What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves adopted children. And we call ourselves sinners. And God's going like, oh, for Pete's sakes, come on. That's not what I said. I, I didn't say, hey, adopted child, come and sit on my lap. God says, you are my child. You are my son and you are my daughter. And I love you more than you will ever know. I want you to enter into the joy of your father who could give you and, and love you unconditionally. That's the way God calls us. But we go like, no, you know what? I've looked in the mirror, and what I see in the mirror, God, it ain't so pretty. It's pretty ugly. Well, we're stepping right into the same thing that Gideon's doing. And by the way, I can relate to Gideon, because how many times have I known that God says, here's the mission I want to send you on right now at this very moment. There's the person. Go over and talk to him. And all of a sudden, the thing that rolls out of my mind because, and it comes out of my mouth and out of my heart, I go, I can't do that. I don't have enough education. I'm not smart enough. I go back and I will use my default um, excuses. I'm not educated enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I I just can't do it. And, And by the way, God, I'm really busy right now. I've got to go watch paint dry in my house. And so, I, I, you know, I just can't do it. And that's exactly the same thing that, that's going on with Gideon. Gideon's going like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm the least of the least. I can't do it. I'm hiding in a wine press for crying out loud. And God's going like, look, here's, here's what I want to say. And it's in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. All of a sudden, God's going like, I don't care what excuses you throw out to me. You are a man of valor, and you are going to go, and you will kick somebody's fanny, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to tell you right now, by, it's by the strength of God, you're going to kick somebody's family, fanny. I'm sure God probably reminded him uh, about Ehud and about Shamgar, mighty Shamgar, right? Remember Shamgar? His ox goad? Boom. I'm going to wipe out 600 of you guys with my ox goat. And, and Gideon's going like, yeah, but those guys were warriors. I, I just beat wheat, man. I can't beat anybody else. 
And God's going, no, no, I got this. I want you to do this. So, but you would think that that would be what it would take is just the reassurance from God that I'm not asking you to do something on your own. I am going to empower you to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. And that's the truth about God. When God asks you to do something, he doesn't ask you to do it in the flesh. He says, my spirit will give you what you need at the moment you need it to do the job I'm calling you to do. And that's the very thing that he's saying here to Gideon. He says, I'm going to give you all this and you are going to go and do it. All you have to do is believe me. And it's this little thing that is hindering Gideon from doing what God's called him to do and it's called a lack of faith and he really doesn't know who God is. That's the problem. He knows a lot about God, but he doesn't know God. And that becomes the issue in our own lives. We read the Bible, we study the Bible, we hear things, we hear good preaching, we go online. I mean, we've got all of these resources at our disposal now, and we learn a whole bunch of things about God, but we never step into knowing God. And when you fail to know God, then you will find it easy not to follow through on the things God's asking you to do. So God wants to give, you know, when somebody lacks confidence in a certain area that they're supposed to be working in, you don't have them do the biggest project to begin with. You give them something smaller to do, something that would be a little bit maybe easier to handle. And so what, what the prob- one of the problems that Gideon has is he's not used to walking in faith and righteousness and holiness of God. So God goes like, all right, your first assignment, Gideon, is this. Your dad and your aunts and your uncles, all of your relatives in that clan, in that area that you live in, they have set up this idol to Baal and they have Asherah pole set up. And these are a high offense to me. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to the family altar to this false god and this, this, this uh, false idol that's standing up and I want you to tear the altar down and I want you to chop down the uh, Asherah pole. And so I want you to get two oxen, bull oxen, and, and do it. And so Gideon, he's going like, you betcha. Go down to the family farm. I'll make a mess of things down there. Can I do it at night? Because I'm really afraid of my family. So he goes under the cover of darkness, and he grabs ten of his buddies, and they go and they take the two oxen, and they rip this altar. I don't know what it looked like, but they rip this thing apart with the oxen, and then they cut down the Asherah pole, and then God told uh, Gideon, now I want you to make an altar for me, and I want you to take the younger of these two oxen, and I want you to kill the younger one, and then I want you to take the wood from the Asherah pole, I want you to put it on the altar you've made for me, and I want you to put that oxen, and I want you to give me a burnt offering right now with that. So he does it, and it's all great until the morning comes around when all of the relatives go outside and they're going to make their usual sacrifice to Baal and they're going to go worship Asherah. And guess what? 
They find the altar of Baal laying all strewn all over the place. The thing's completely destroyed. And the Asherah is cut down and partially burnt. And there's this other altar built up and there's a sacrifice on it. And now they're mad. You know, it's one thing to get your neighbors mad. It's a totally different ballpark or picture to get your, your family mad at you. And so now the family's mad. And so they start to do a little bit of an investigation to find out who it is that came in and did all this this monkey business during the night. And in their investigation, lo and behold, they find out because one of those ten buddies, when he got under pressure, he gave up Gideon. goes, no, it wasn't me, it was Gideon. He did it. Joe Ash's son. So they go over and they go like, all right. And so then they knock on the door and they go, hey, Joe Ash, is Gideon in there? Because you need to send him out because he tore down, you know, the, the altar to Baal and to Asherah and we're going to kill him now. And Joash, he must, Joash has some kind of influence with the entire clan. Because he goes, no, uh-uh, not going to happen. And yeah, Gideon did that. But listen, if Baal and Asherah are gods, then they can contend with Gideon on their own. They don't need you to do it. If they're a god, they can handle this themselves. And so they're going, and, and then Joash even says, and if you try to lay a hand on Gideon and you contend for this false god then I'm going to kill you for worshiping a false god because, because Baal should be able to contend with himself against my son. End of story. It's done. And so, you know, there's this great victory that's won for the family and, and this high place of this stuff has been torn down and, and now we've got things happening and so it, it's, it's a good day for Gideon because he's completed his first task. And so you would think after completing this first task and knowing that God was with him, that now when God calls Gideon to go out and to, to deal with the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other people, this huge army that have come and invaded his country, when God calls him to do it, he's going to go like, yeah, you know what? You helped me take care of those nasty little idols and it was victorious and my family now is going to follow you instead of these idols. That's awesome. Let's go get those guys, God. But what Gideon does is goes like, well, I really don't believe you mean it. And, and so God goes, well, what do you mean? He says, I told you, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to help you. You don't have to worry about anything. All I need you to do is show up. You show up and you watch how I work. I'll do the rest of the work. You just trust me. You watch what I do. And Gideon's going like, well, I can't do that. Because I, I just don't, I don't know that you really mean it. So Gideon says, how about if we do this little test thing? I'm going to take a piece of wool and I'm going to put it on the ground and then I'm going to ask you if you really are going to be with me to go take care of these invaders of Israel. If you're going to be with me, then overnight what you're going to do is you're going to put a bunch of dew onto that wool and the ground around it will be completely dry. And so Gideon gets up in the morning and he goes out and he finds this hunk of wool, a fleece, and he grabs that fleece and he goes to a bowl and he squeezes so much water out of the fleece that it fills the bowl with water. And the ground is completely dry. You would go like, there's your answer. Let's go get those guys now. Let's, let's go kill a bunch of Midianites. And, and, and of course, Gideon says, well, we don't want to be too hasty now, do we? Here's what he says in verses 39 and 40. Then Gideon said to God, 
Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test, test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. If you've been around church for any length of a time, if you've been around church people who speak Christianese, you will hear people who say, well, maybe we should put out a fleece to see if this is God's will. I'm going to tell you right now, that's a really bad idea. Okay, I'm not a favor of fleeces, throwing fleeces out there to test God to see if this is what God wants us to do. Now listen, our God is a merciful, loving, patient God who knows our weaknesses. However, the story of Gideon should be for for our instruction and not serve as a model for our behavior. Matter of fact, Jesus said on two occasions that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. His point was that the signs he had already given them, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the healings and miracles were sufficient for them to respond to truth if truth is what they were really seeking. And clearly, it was not. Another lesson of Gideon's fleece is that those asking for signs are exhibiting a weak and immature faith that won't be convinced or convinced by signs anyway. Gideon had received more than enough information without the sign of the fleece. God told him he would have victory and he had responded to a previous request for a sign, which I didn't share with you, but I'm going to share right now. And it's found in chapter 6, verse 21. And and it's when he's having that conversation with the angel and he went in and he prepared a goat and brought out some bread and he put it on a rock and he poured some broth on it to feed, but it's on a rock. And here's what it says in, in verse Um, 21, and then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. This is all before he went out and tore down the Asherah poles. This is all with him saying, God, is this really you talking to me? Because if it is, then prove it to me by showing me some miraculous sign. And God brings fire out of a rock and consumes this entire lunch right in front of his face. And the angel is gone like that. And yet, out of all of the miracles, miraculous signs that that God is providing for Gideon, Gideon, Gideon keeps saying, it's not enough, I need more. And that's because there's a lack of faith of knowing who God really is. Because if you know the Lord God Almighty, the God of the Bible, you don't have to ask for miracles. We have all this in front of us. You know, and then Gideon asked for these two more signs because of his own insecurity. And in the same way, even when God does provide a sign we ask for, it doesn't give us what we crave because we're wavering in faith and we still have doubts. 
And that often leads us to asking for multitude of signs, none of which will give us assurance we need because the problem isn't with God's power. It is with our perception of who God is. And we don't trust God to be God, and we are faithless even when he is faithful. A problem with following Gideon's example of fleece setting is that it does not take into account that our situation and his are really not comparable anyway. As a Christ follower, we have two powerful tools that Gideon lacked. First, we have the complete word of God, which we know is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has assured us that his word is all we need to be thoroughly equipped for anything and everything in life. We do not need, uh, ex- we do not need any more Proofs or signs or voices or miracles to verify that he's all, what he's already told us in his word. We do not need the experiential. Our second advantage over Gideon is that every Christ follower has the Holy Spirit who is God himself residing in our hearts to guide, direct, and encourage us. And prior to Pentecost, believers had only the Old Testament and were directed externally by God's providential hand. Now we have his complete word and his indwelling presence in our hearts. So what greater sign do we need than to have the living God living in our hearts, guiding us and directing us and giving us understanding? It's like Zachariah, like God said to Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by the spirit of God. It's nothing else. So here we have, we have, Midian, we have Gideon, who's asked for all these different signs that God's going to be with him. And now he has, and he's finally convinced that God's going to help him win this battle. So what does Gideon do? He goes back to the very family that he's kind of made mad at him by tearing down all their high places and, and their idols and all the rest of that stuff. He tore it all down. You would think that they'd still be kind of torqued off at him because this isn't more than a week from when he did that. And he says, hey, we're going to go and we're going to hand the Midians a big defeat, the Amalekites too. And his relatives go, okay, we're in. So they grab their little swords and their spears, their bows and arrows, their shields, and they go out and they meet him. And so they bring, and then he gathers a bunch of other people from throughout Israel. And lo and behold, he, he just at a, a simple asking for people to come and fight, he has 32,000 Israelites that are going like, let's, let's, let's go get busy. Let's go chase these guys out. Let's go spill some blood. And so Gideon's going like, all right, God, look what I got. It's 32,000. We still need your help because there's over 100,000 of the, the enemy camped down there. And so we do need your help because 32,000 versus 100, you know, that's, we're going we're gonna to need a little bit of help. And God's going like, all right. Well, here's what I want you to do, because you've got too many men ready to go to battle. And Gideon's like, what? Yep, too many of them. So here's what I want you to say to all the guys. Get up on the stump and say, if you're 
afeard for your life, you're a little bit scared, and you really don't want to go to battle, pack up your stuff and go home. 22,000 of them go, okay, thanks, see you later. Hope you have a good time in battle. 22,000 of them leave, so he has 10,000 left. And what does God say to Gideon? He's going like, you still got too many guys. And Gideon's going like, you're kidding me, right? God's going, no. He says, so I want you to take them down to the water, and you're going to get them to drink water. And you're going to watch, because there's going to be one of two things that happens. There are going to be some guys who get down on their hands and knees, and they stick their face into the water, and they just drink as much as they can, and they drink and drink and drink. And then there's going to be the other guys who go down on one knee, and they cup their hands full of water, and then they bring it up, and they lap the water out of their hands. They drink it like this, and then they get more, and they drink it like this. And God said, whoever pulls the water up in their hands and drinks it out of their cupped hands, those are the ones I want to fight in battle. And Gideon's going like, all right. And so he's watching, and he's going, you, you, you. And he counts all these guys, and he gets the guys that are drinking like this, and he piles them over there, and he turns around and looks, and he goes like, that's only 300 guys, God. God goes, yeah, I know. Send the other guys home. So 9,700 of these dudes go like, all right, see you later. Good luck. 300 against 100,000. This is going to be interesting. And the reason God does that is because he wants, he wants it to be known that it was God who brought the victory to Gideon and it wasn't by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the lesson God wants Gideon to get out of this. And so Gideon's going like, okay, I'm going to be faithful with, with you. How do we fight these guys now? So God says, give each man three things. Give him a trumpet, give him a, a, a clay jar, and give him a torch. And we're going to fight this battle at night. And Gideon's going like, all right. He goes, what do we do? And so he lays out the plan. So Gideon tells all of his men, he says, here's what's going to happen. You've got the torch, you've got the clay pot, and you've got your trumpet. And so what is going to happen is when you see me crash my clay pot, throw my torch up in the air, and blow my trumpet, then we're all going to yell in one voice, unison together, for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. That's what we're going to chant. We're all going to do it together. And so Gideon does it. He breaks the pot. The torch comes on. They, they yell for the sword of the Lord and Gideon, 300 of these guys surrounding the camp. And, and the torches go and then they blow the trumpets. It brings such mass confusion to 100,000 of these, these soldiers that they start to fight each other. They kill each other. They're the ones that are dying. And Gideon's going like, this is working out really well. I really like this. But no sweat, God, but we got this. Just keep going. And so the whole, this whole thing goes on. And, and thousands by thousands by thousands, they're just killing each other because God has made it so that they're confused and they're slaughtering each other in battle. And, they're going, and the Israelites are going like, this couldn't have worked out better. We can have a little espresso and watch this whole thing unfold in front of our eyes. This is great. And then at the end, there's only a handful of them left. And so Gideon, day breaks. Gideon grabs a bunch of other guys and says, go get those guys. I'm going to go get the two kings of Midian so that I can kill them. And God receives the glory for the victory of what's going on. This is Gideon's finest moment. Now, it's like as soon as Gideon 
has made this progress with this, we see something happening in Gideon's heart. As soon as the victory is won, as soon as he's got the two kings in flight, he takes off and he's, he's pursuing them and he goes to this, these two towns, Sukkoth and Penela. And they're smaller little towns and tribes. And so when he comes to Sukkoth, he says to them, he goes, where are the two kings? And the leaders and the elders of Sukkoth go like, we don't know, and who are you, and why should we even care? We don't care. He says, well, give me some bread for my men because they're really hungry, and we've been pursuing these guys, and we've been in battle, and they just need something to... And they go, no, forget it. You're on your own. And so, so Gideon says, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to grab all of the elders and the leaders of this little town, and I'm going to take you out into the wilderness, and I'm going to roll you in the briars, and I'm going to beat those briars until it rips the flesh off of your bones. And he takes off and he goes to the next little town, Penella. And he gets there and he says, hey, listen, we need your help, blah, blah, blah. And they're going, up yours. We don't know who you are. Just take a hike. We don't even care about you. You're an idiot. Who do you think you are? And he says, listen, I'm going to do worse to you than what I did to, to Sukkoth. I'm going to come back here. I'm going to tear this tower down. And then I'm going to kill every man in this little town. And he takes off, and he finally catches up with the two kings, and he drags them back. And sure enough, he takes and he kills every man in Penela, and he goes over to Sukkoth, and he takes the, the leaders out there, and he rolls them in the briars, and he beats them, and the flesh comes off of their, their skin. You know what the problem with all of that is? Is that he, all of a sudden, Gideon is too big for his britches, where he was asking God and begging God to come and help him uh, gain the victory over this nation that's invaded Israel. And he's not going to go unless God proves himself. Now all of a sudden he's got this victory where God helped him. Now he's turning around and Sukkoth and Penela, they are his countrymen. They are Israelites. And he comes in and he lays his judgment on them. And there's two things he didn't do. He didn't seek God to see what he should do with both of these towns. And he didn't ask anybody for advice. And God's going like, that was bad. That was really, really bad. And so after, after all of that takes place and he's won the battle and he's done these things to these little towns, it says in um, chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This is actually a great response on Gideon's part because God has told Israel, you don't need a king. I'm going to be your king. I'm the one that's going to lead you. And so far, so good. But, you know, even though Gideon says, I am not going to be your king, neither will my son or my grandson be your king, Gideon starts to act and behave like a king. If you read on in there, you're going to find out that Gideon had 70 sons. That's seven zero. I'm telling you right now, one wife did not produce 70 boys. That did not happen. 
So he had a lot of wives. He also had concubines, which are, are kind of house-made slave girls that he would impregnate as well. So he, he's got a lot of wives. And, and guess who else always has a lot of wives, has that kind of a, a, a fishing pool to go and check out women with? Kings. Oh, no, I don't want to be your king. But look, I've got the family like a king. Matter of fact, one of his boys, excuse me, is, is uh, his name is Abimelech. And Abimelech in Hebrew means literally, my dad is the king. He names his son Abimelech saying, my dad's the king. And then after all that, he doesn't want to be the king. He doesn't want to rule Israel, but he does like a king does. And he says, but you know, you could help me out. And just kind of because, you know, the Amalekites and the Midianites, they wore gold earrings, the men did. And so you do the plunder. He said, if you would just, I'm just going to put a little blanket down here. And if you would throw your gold earrings in from, from that thing, that would be good enough. I don't need to be your king, but pay me a tax like I was your king. And so they did. And it would have been the equivalent of about $55,000 just on the gold earrings. And he took other trinkets and other things from, because they wore gold necklaces on their camels with a half crescent moon and their purple robes. I mean, he, he took the plunder and, the pill, and pillaged all of it. And, and what happened with that is that here's what he did in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 8. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all of Israel, get this, this is a horrible word. All of Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Do you see what Gideon did? He goes to his, his dad's property, the clan's property, and he wipes out this, this altar to Baal, and he knocks down Asherah and burns it and does all this stuff. He goes and defeats these nations that worship false gods, and then he comes back and he takes the gold and he makes an ephod vest. And if you don't know what that is, that's the vest that the Levites wore when they were in the temple uh, doing service for in front of God. They put this golden vest on, and it had 12 um, precious, precious gems, one representing each tribe of Israel. And so they had this thing, and the only ones that could wear it were the Levites. Gideon was not a Levite. And so he has this thing in his own town and it says the, the whole Israel whored themselves. In other words, they came and prostituted themselves to this breastplate made of gold. And what Gideon did is instead of being a man who is leading them faithfully to follow God, now he has laid out for them this stumbling block of a thing that they're now going to worship. And it has taken Israel from worshiping and following God to doing their own thing. He creates his own version. And even though he's not trying to deny God, he's put himself in the place of God and taken upon himself privileges that belong only to God. And now he's directing people's attention away from God. He did not finish well. 
Here's what happened to Gideon. He, he, he was a reluctant fella to begin with. And so he didn't pursue God the way he should have in his younger days. And then he came into leadership reluctantly after three different tests with God. And then all of a sudden, the power of leadership went to his head. And now he's making claims and doing things that he shouldn't do. And then the wealth of it all overwhelmed him. And I think of the Proverbs. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9 would have been a good one for Gideon to write on the the door of his house. And it says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of of our God. You see, here's here's what happens. Is is that we, we do really well at following God, particularly when we're struggling in life. When we are struggling and we have to depend upon God, we cry out to God and we say, I need help in this particular area. And we're faithful to follow God in all of those things. But as soon as things start to go really well for us, as soon as we, we've got poverty, what we would call poverty, in our rear view mirror, it's way back there. And now we have prosperity in front of us. We forget about who God is. And all of a sudden, we end up like Israel and we find ourselves crying out to God going like, where are you? I feel like I'm walking through a dry and weary land. So real quickly, what I want to do is I want to give you um, five things that were clear that we learned from Gideon's life. And they're indicators that you've made your life about you rather than about Jesus. This is going to be really quick. So the first one is infrequent prayer. Gideon was desperate for God, and he prayed instinctively. A lot of guys do that. I mean, that's the instinctive prayer. But when things start to go well, the instinct for prayer falls away, and we don't even have the discipline of prayer any longer, and the frequency of prayer gets stretched out to where we're only praying occasionally. And so the infrequency of prayer uh, is a sign that we are in it for ourselves and we've forgotten about God. Number two, failure to consult others. Not only does Gideon fail to consult God, he doesn't consult anybody else when it comes to those two little little towns. You become an island to yourself. Um, there's always, you think you know best, better than anybody else, so why would I consult anybody else? No longer humble enough to recognize that they don't know it all. And then what happens is it always ends up destroying you. The second, third thing is resentment. It's when you start to resent those who are around you that God's placed in to help you. You don't get your own way. You become harsh or cruel. You say things. You don't forgive anyone. You hold grudges for a long time. You're challenged. You have all kinds of challenges from other people that you see as challenges instead of help. And, and you become angry at people all the time and you think they're out to get you when in fact they just want to help you and you come down on them like a hammer. Material, number four, materialistic excess. 
Gideon takes people's money and makes for himself this, this gold plate. And, and listen, I'm not a poverty guy. God loves to give us nice things. But for leaders and people who have it all about them, they start to live on a higher plane. They think they deserve it. They want the newer, the bigger, and the flashier. And number five is constant worrying about your name. You are no longer worried about making the name of God great. You are more worried about making your own name great. And God becomes second place to you bringing your own name to be highlighted. These are the signs. And it can become about you. And maybe you think of yourself as being a good person or a great person who wants to follow God and you want to lead other people to know God. But at the end, you use your success to substitute yourself for God. You put on the ephod and share the glory with God. And that's a horrible offense to the, to the church because Jesus, the church is Jesus' bride, not yours. He appoints us to do things, but not to be him. So let me just finish off with this. It's never about us. It's always about Jesus. Jesus finished well. He came into this earth in total obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. He wasn't born in a castle. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't given to rich and famous parents. He came to a little virgin girl named Mary and to Joseph, his carpenter father, and he lived in obscurity. He went into adulthood. He took on the leadership that God asked him to take. He took that leadership and he finished well by going to the cross and he was resurrected from the grave. And when he was resurrected from the grave, that was the exclamation mark on his life and that he had finished what God had given him to do. Our tendency is more to follow in the footsteps of Gideon and to step into places where God leads us, forget about God, and not finish well. Let's be more like Jesus rather than Gideon. And it's in the words of the Apostle Paul that I finish. Now that, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We're going to move right into 